0: From the studios of Bay FM in Byron Bay and broadcasting across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Not Thinking Straight with Michael Mack, a broadcast that celebrates the talent and diversity of the LGBTQ plus community and their allies and provides a place to showcase their remarkable voices and stories. Welcome to another episode of Not Thinking Straight I'm excited to bring you a real find this week 54 years ago the BBC created a series called Man Alive They had two special reports which I'm going to be playing tonight About homosexuality Part 1 entitled The Men And Part 2 entitled The Women I'm going to reverse that I'm going to make Part 1 The Women In part two, the men. In our second hour, you will hear the epilogue to the amazing series by Eric Marcus coming of age during the AIDS crisis. We finish with a tribute to Donna Persona. You may not know the name, but you'll hear her in her own voice in our final half hour. In our first half hour, Angela Huth interviews lesbians about their lives. Stevie has been living as a man since her teens, even entering into heterosexual relationships with other women. Julie and Cynthia have lived together for many years and claim they see no difference between their relationship and that of a married couple. In a private club in Chelsea, lesbians can enjoy a safe haven that allows them to be themselves without risking condemnation from society. We're talking about 1967 here, and I think you'll find... All the stories, absolutely fascinating. This documentary was filmed and broadcast before the Sexual Offences Act 1967 decriminalised homosexual acts in private in England and Wales between two men who had attained the age of 21. In terms of the Sexual Offences Act, this did not apply to lesbians.
1: Most lesbians will prefer to conceal the
2: fact that they are lesbian because, yeah, because their jobs Yes, because, their because they're not accepted. I think that if more people did have the courage to um, well, I mean, I don't not go about with a great big placard on, I am a lesbian, <laughs> but if any friends ask them, if pe- or if they heard a discussion and lesbians were, um, in one firm I worked for, there was a discussion and I got hot and bothered because of things that were said and flared up in defence and they said, Oh, anybody think you were you were a lesbian yourself, and I said, "Well, I am. What are you going to do about it?" You know, they sort of looked at me and said, "Oh, are you?" Well, oh, you're all right. <laughs> it didn't make any difference afterwards. There was no sort of talking in corners or not talking to me. They sort of surprised at the beginning, and certain jokes that, were, that had been told before went over in front of me again, but. Uh, it didn't make all that difference. And I think if people had the courage to do that, I didn't do it from courage, I did it from temper. But people, if more people would admit it, I think that it would be much, much better because people would become accustomed to the fact, become accustomed to the fact that um, we're ordinary people.
1: They are all women at this party, lesbians. They are all women who, as homosexuals, are officially better off than men. There's no law to stop them consenting privately to be lovers. There's no legal frown on their relationships, no parliamentary discussion about their behaviour. And yet, for women who love women, unqualified acceptance by our society still does not exist. We are heterosexually geared. Naturally, propaganda for love, for sex, for conformist lives is all aimed at women with men. The idea of two women feeling about each other in the same way as a normal couple disturbs that happy concept. And so lesbians receive the minority treatment. Intolerance, suspicion, often disgust. The fact that they're legally free to live as they like makes little difference. Steve Rogers and her girlfriend don't often walk down a street for pleasure. There's too much risk involved. Risk of public mockery, undisguised amazement, crude jokes. Many lesbians of course aren't so aggressively masculine as Steve and for them it's not so bad. But for Steve, who's 24 and whose whole instinct cries out to her to feel and act like a man, her appearance makes her constantly vulnerable. She's been to many doctors. They've told her to accept herself, accept what she is. She's done that, but there's a little reward in the acceptance and it's always been the same. Her conflict with society has resulted in borstal and even prison. The suffering began when she was a child
3: my mother had me when she was 15 and my father was american and uh, she only knew him a few days and, and uh, then when i was six she got married to my stepfather and he didn't he didn't accept me as somebody else's having somebody else's child and um, to the day they were married they spent the evening in, the, in the, my grandmother's house and my mother had pumped it into me so much that i had to call him dad And i met him at the top of the stairs and i called him dad and he knocked me from the top of the stairs to the bottom and uh, after that my mother used to dress me in a dress and send me off to school and i used to stand on the doorstep and cry and uh, they couldn't find out what it was or anything and i'd always play play with boys toys and that and uh, i'd always like little pairs of trousers so my grandmother started dressing me in boys clothes a little and and I used to run off to school and enjoy myself and then they had to get permission from the education people to um, let me wear trousers to school but when I realized it most was um, when I started getting attracted to girls when I was about 12 or 13 what happened you know I used to want to take them home and when I took them home I used to get really upset and mad if my mother called me she because I used to go with these girls and make out that I was a boy and then she let me down when I got home by saying she and calling me a girl's name. Can you remember how you felt towards these girls? I used to get involved very quick, you know. I used to think that I was in love with every one of them that I was with. Did you have physical relationships with yeah. them as well? At 12? Yeah. How did they feel about that? They didn't know really, you know, because um, I wasn't all that old enough to have sex properly with them. That's... But when I did get older, um, when I was 15, now I was 16, so... Um, I met this girl and um, I was with her for six months and I got engaged to her. I really forgot that I was a woman and uh, she thought she was pregnant because there's some things that a lesbian you know, can use. And I got away with using one of those she and she didn't going. know the difference, no. And uh, the next thing I know, her mother kept on about us getting married. So I thought oh, I'd better get out of it, you know, because I knew I couldn't get married to her. And So then I hopped it and next thing I know, the police are after me, the girl thinks she's pregnant and they're taking me to court for breach of promise and that. They took me to court and then it all came out that I was a girl. And what do you think
1: it is that is the basis for the attitude there is in our society towards lesbians?
3: I just think they don't understand it and they don't want to understand it. They just push it aside and just make fun of you all the time. Is it possible to explain
1: um, what it's all about? you think, you know, you say people don't understand it well they don't, obviously mm. do you, how do you think you can explain this to people, if you were asked to do so? I'm asking you now, can you try to describe what it's all about to make out that it isn't something that we should disapprove of
3: uh, No, I think people should just you know if if they wa- want to get to know about it they should uh, ask you about it, not criticise it first would you mind people asking you about no, it? no, I wouldn't mind if I thought people were asking me because they wanted to understand it. I wouldn't mind that at all. I'd explain it to them, but Can if you... they just criticise you first...
1: How much chance do you think there is of having a lasting relationship as a lesbian?
3: I don't think lesbian relationships last long at all. Why not? Two or three years at the longest. I, I don't know. I had one relationship. That was with a nurse. She, Her name was Anne. And I was with her for three years, but then it just... We sort of drifted apart. Do you know why that was? I think they st- women that can have children and that, they start seeing people with babies and that, and they just long for a baby and it's, you sort, just sort of drift apart and they just call to them in. Would you like to have a baby? I, how do you mean have a Well, would you like? I'd like to be the father of a baby or act as the father of a baby. Would Anne like to have a baby? Yeah. And would you think it would be a good idea
1: for her to have a baby so that you could be the father, so-called father?
3: Yeah, we'd love to adopt one but... I don't think there's much chance on that, the fact that what we are and we've been in prison and that. Sometimes one wonder what'll happen to lesbians in old age. Does it become, Do you think it'll become more difficult? Yeah, I think so. That's why I'm finding it difficult now. But you're only 24. Get, uh, yeah, but I mean, it's showing, isn't it? I mean, if I was a man, I'd be shaving. And that's one of the things that they notice on in your voice. Do you have any desire at all to be f- more feminine, to be more no. like a woman? No. I'd do everything I could to... You know, be a man. I have think it would make me more happier if I was a man.
1: Have you never felt, um, ever in your life, any desire for men to treat you as men normally do treat women?
3: No, not at all. I hate it if a man treats me as a girl. You know, if, I mean, some men they stand by and let a woman go first. Well, if a man did that to me, you know, I'd feel insulted. Well, what sort of relationship do you manage to have with men? As another man, I used to go around with a lot of fellas, you know, as another man. And they believed you were another man, yeah. did they? but no, it's hopeless, I You just can't get them to accept it. Mm. It just makes you feel, well, you just as well be in prison, because it's a sort of prison anyway. I mean, having to shut yourself in all the time, not go out, because you, you're you worried about what people are going to say to you, you know, and they're going to laugh at you and everything. Do people actually laugh at you yeah. so you can hear? They laugh in your face now, as well as behind your back. Does your mother know about you? Yeah. What does she think? She just, just thinks it's disgusting. She can't accept it. You tried to explain to her? Yeah, and the doctors tried to explain, but she just thinks I can just go and put a dress on, and that's it. So if, is it ever possible for you to be happy? Don't think so, unless people accept the fact. Can you ever remember being happy? No, not really happy. I've laughed and joked about it, but I've never been really happy. Do you think you ever will be able to be happy? The way things are now, no. And do you think the way things are now, will ever change? It could be, but not to that extent, I don't think so. When I say I'm not happy, I don't mean I'm not happy with Anne or anything like that. I'm happy when I'm with Anne on my own, when we're indoors, like. But when I'm out, I'm just not happy. I'm just looking around all the time and noticing people are stopping and staring and laughing. You can't be happy not in an atmosphere like that. So what's the point of your life, really?
1: A comfortable house in Wandsworth, indistinguishable from thousands of homes owned by married couples. It's where Julie Switzer and Cynthia Reed, a lesbian couple, have lived for four years. For them, as for many lesbians, their relationship appears to be a permanent one, their life together established, a domestic life which began, as conventionally as any normal married couple, when they fell in love. Homosexual practices may not be approved of, homosexual love
3: cannot be denied. Well. For me, it was um, not my first love affair. I had been in love with um, a school teacher and I'd been in love with another girl. Uh, it was the same feeling. It, it is, you know, the feeling of being in love. I'm sure it's exactly the same for men and for women, a feeling of deep emotion towards someone. And um, with me, it happened quite suddenly. I had, in fact, only known Julie a few days uh, at the time I was very lonely and very depressed and I think this probably helped. I think if you're in that state where you feel ready to love ready to love someone, you know, you're, you're virtually looking for someone to give your love to, I think then it can happen very easily. And it did for me, it happened very quickly and very easily. And I just knew that was it. You know, I didn't have to, to think about it really. It just happened. We both expected that in order to love somebody you had to know them for a long time. In fact, we, we felt we knew each other almost immediately. We could talk about yes. almost anything, yes. and uh, we just got on extremely well right from the very beginning. Who told who first, that we loved each other? I think I was the first one to actually say that I loved you. I think than I was, <laughs> <laughs> <the next time. laughs> was I think a... largely because I felt that um, Julie perhaps expected me to take more initiative. I was, I'm five years older than she is, and Having already been in love with someone else, I, you know, that was probably the only reason that yeah. I felt it was you know for me to speak. first. Was it romantic? Oh yes, I think it was very romantic that yes. was, I think, yeah. yeah, you know I, I just don't see any difference between a normal couple falling in love and and two women falling in love or two men falling in love um it's as romantic as the two people make it we nearly always want to be together if we can yeah there's no question of what were you doing last night in fact we don't seem to manage to spend a great deal of time together in the evenings but um, Mm -hmm. you know we we live i think very full lives and i think this probably helps we don't intentionally sort of wrap ourselves up in one another and exclude everyone else as some lesbian couples do seem to Uh, I think this is a mistake as far as I'm concerned being lesbian is simply one small well one fairly big part of my life but it's only part of my life and uh, there are other important parts of my life that I want to follow up how do you organize your domestic life together is one of you the sort of dominant figure like the man or is one of you take the decision how how do you work it out I think Cynthia is naturally a bit more socially dominant than I am. A little, yeah. she, te- she tends to um, <laughs> deal with the bills. And you don't decide so much now as you used to, when and where we go out and that sort of thing. I used to leave a lot to Cynthia. I think, again, this was just at, at first, mm. until we were used to each other. But now we, we take most things between us. It so happens that she likes studying, so she studies in her spare time. And I like decorating and gardening, so I do that. As for the other things, the cooking and the housework, well, <clears throat> Neither of us very much likes doing <laughs> we <both> them. We <laughs> <laughs> If you go out
1: together for dinner, say,
3: who pays the bill? Oh, you well, do. Well, oh. I do. I usually deal with all the financial side, but this doesn't mean I'm paying with my money. I mean, as far as expenditure goes, you know, we're both in good jobs. We're both earning uh, reasonable pay, so we expect to pay um, you know, fair shares. But actually dealing with checks and paying bills and um, restaurant bills and so on I usually deal with it simply I suppose because I've been doing it uh, for some time before I met Julie I was I left mm. home considerably before she did and again if you go out to
1: dinner would you choose a place that um, in a heterosexual view would be a sort of romantic place to go to dinner with quiet lights and candles and so forth
3: if we wanted um, a special dinner for, for some occasion we would yes uh, candlelight dinners we both enjoy but um, well, we can afford them you do seem to be a particularly happy and lucky and well-adjusted couple
1: do you think on behalf of less lucky lesbians and yourself there's anything that that you would like done improved in the way of the attitude of society towards you as a whole
3: mm. yes I, I think it's more incumbent on the lesbians themselves rather than on society. I think society is becoming prepared to accept all kinds of different types of behavior and not to get so emotionally upset about them as they did in the Mm. past. But I think that many lesbians could help themselves uh, first by ceasing to be obsessed with their own lesbianism. That is, regarding it simply as a part of their personality and not the whole of it. Mm and also to be more outgoing to in effect to expect acceptance from people because i'm sure that to a certain extent at any rate one gets the reaction from people that one does expect and if one expects acceptance from people there's a higher chance than otherwise that you will get it
4: i am woman hear me roar in numbers too big to ignore too much to go back and protect. Cause I've heard it all before, and I've been down there on the floor, and no one's ever gonna keep me down again.
0: You're listening to Not Thinking Straight. And this is a BBC special from way back in 1967 from the Man Alive series. The title of this episode is Consenting Adults the winner
1: The swashbuckling approach, the heartiness, the thumping stride, the tough man's clothes, these things are natural to some lesbians, but mostly unacceptable to people outside that world. This means that for lesbians who want to relax in the kind of clothes and the kind of way that make them happy, there are few places to go. One of them is a club in Chelsea, a place where there's no longer any need to pretend. There they can dance, drink, flirt, make friends, discuss their problem with others who will understand. And it isn't just in public places that life is made more difficult for them. <laughs> where, where does the discrimination come? Is it about
3: jobs, or friends, or going to pubs, or, or
5: where and well, when? In do
3: jobs,
5: you it and, well to some extent, in your friends, it depends on your friends. I mean, I'm lucky all my straight friends know, and they don't worry, they accept me for what I am. Because Mostly because they knew me before they knew I was gay. But. Um, in the, in a the job, I I think it can be very difficult. I've lost one job through it, although I find it hard to prove. But I I have had jobs with very respectable institutions, and and <laughs> and they they don't mind, you know. They accept me for
3: what I am, even in as far as doing youth work. Why, for instance, do you all have to come here to meet all the time? Why can't you go to an ordinary pub or something? Um, well, it's a very difficult. I uh, well, I suppose um, perhaps my feelings don't. Um, aren't the sort of general ones but I just I like to relax and I like to be in a world which isn't particularly dominated by men I like to be able to go to the bar and buy a drink I like to be able to sit there and not have some man come to try to pick me up which happens the whole time if I go to a normal pub I just happen to like a society where everyone is really equal quite apart from being lesbian which I mean whatever the word means I just like a society where everybody's equal Do you find that it's possible to go to an ordinary pub or an ordinary restaurant with a girl and behave in a relaxed manner? Well, not really, no, I don't, because um, all the time you're wondering what the other one's going to say and you have to um, be very careful because if you think the world of the person you're with and she thinks the world of you. You're talking to her all the time, and um, you can't go over to her and say, "Well, look, darling, pass me the sauce," or something like that. Everybody's going to look. <laughs> but um, you yeah, know, it's just one of those things. That, down here, the atmosphere is so different. You know, everybody's relaxing and they're uh, well, they're dancing together. Whereas yeah. if you went to a normal um, say a dance hall where there are men as well, then. If two women got up to dance together, they'd immediately think, well, here, you know, there's a couple, <laughs> and down here, you know, it's just different. You know, I, I sort of resent... It's because of society that we have to sort of congregate underground. It's ludicrous. I don't want to... I mean, the people I like generally happen to be heterosexual, people I love best. But um, since we're forced to think about in sexual terms the whole time, what's forced to come underground like this? It's, it's a whole fault of the other people, I think. Do you think you ought to be allowed to go
1: anywhere you like and behave as you like?
3: Yes, we should be allowed to I think. I mean um, they, the homosexual bill has gone through nearly and although we haven't had one you know, ever against us, um, I think we should be allowed to go where we like, dressed in what we like and be accepted generally by society. Would you all rather be ordinary? Normal? I, I don't think. Well, really and truly, we didn't have any choice, did we? No. I think we are well, we yes. are because we are. Oh, we no, have got the choice
2: so, for the simple it? reason we can suppress it and marry you can't. and have a home. You can't. And mm-hmm. Yes, you can. You, you can definitely get married, have a home, and to all outward people, you can appear to be normal. Mm-hmm. And yet, by God, what, what do you do to yourself? I mean, you
1: destroy yourself.
3: destroy
1: I
2: could no more
3: get married.
1: These lesbians understand how marriage might destroy them. Others find out too late, after they have married and tried to live normally. This housewife has been married 20 years. She has two sons. She loves them, looks after them, is a good mother and dutiful housekeeper. But she's also a lesbian. For 14 years she struggled against her instincts, was faithful to her husband and family. It's for their sake that she doesn't want to be recognized. In her case, by trying to appear normal, she has made greater problems for herself. To be homosexual is difficult enough. To be trapped by so-called normal marriage doubles the unhappiness. She keeps up the struggle. But what are the hardest things to bear?
3: Well, family <clears throat> and all that goes with it. Um, having children. Although small, you might be able to string along and present a normal sort of married front to your neighbors. But when one's children grow up, one has to tell them, I don't believe in keeping things secret. I think they find out anyway. So sooner or later you're faced with the task of having to tell your sons that you are in fact a queer. And you find that you get yourself in an emotional state where you're prepared to leave your family. You find somebody whom you do love and who loves you. And um, everything is wonderful. And then suddenly the other woman realizes that if indeed you do set up a house, hold or uh, make a home together she is going to break up your marriage she's also going to break up your family and indeed she cannot be sure whether after a few months or so you have not some urgent longing to want to go back to your family Have you ever she faced having to make this decision between
1: a woman and staying with your husband yes what did you decide
3: i decided to go i was perfectly prepared to do so in fact i was once looking for a flat I was going to take my younger son with me because I think when one is 14 and he's been through a tough time of course, um, one needs one's mother still, but as it always happens or always seems to happen to me at any rate, um, you know, they can't take it, the other women. Their possessiveness is so tremendous that the thing breaks up because you're not acceptable as a married woman. You have got a family. You belong to somebody else. And even if you deny belonging to your husband, you cannot deny that you belong to your children. Indeed, you don't want to deny that you belong to your children. You visualize a kind of existence where you can live your life with your chosen partner and yet still participate in the life that your children lead. Even though they may get married, you want to see their grandchildren. And this is something your partner cannot accept. Evidently, they cannot accept this. So is that, why, is that why you're still here? Yes, indeed. Do you cook for your husband? Yes, I do. Do you sleep with him? No, do not. So what's your relationship with your husband consist of? Well, it tends to drift towards a kind of friendship now, not a companionship, even because, as it so happens, this is, of course, pure chance we share nothing in common. We have no interests. He's very keen on sport, I'm not. Do you think you will leave him one day for a moment? Yes, I hope so. It sounds cruel, doesn't it? A cold hearted because he said a very rough deal. I realized that the kind of life we are leading now is only designed to distress him further. He has no hope of ever reestablishing a relationship like it was before he left. And uh, I can see no hope for him or for me for that matter, really. I may have to wait until I'm born again. Do the names know about you here? I don't know and I don't care. Um, My neighbors must think me an odd bird anyway. because I'm different, I know. But I don't care what they think. The only reason why I would care was in case it should injure my husband or the children. Do you really not care what people think? No, I don't. Doesn't it ever hurt you? It hurts me when they they laugh and when they sneer. Do they do that in front of you? Oh, yes, indeed they do. This is something that people cannot understand. Um, They think that being a homosexual is something odd. They think it is uh, filthy, perhaps even, and disgusting, which it isn't, of course. There is nothing, nothing at all extraordinary in being a homosexual, any more than there is in being a heterosexual. It's, it's, a, it's a sneering that I can't get. That I don't dig, as they say, and the laughing, the funny speculations. I wonder what they do in bed with each other, you know? Have you got a girlfriend at the moment? Yes. Are you in love with her? How long have you known her for? Three months. It's a good relationship that might last. I thought it was, but what I've told you before is true of this relationship too. We discussed it all. We were very truthful with each other, very honest. We thought we could make something of this. We both believe in absolute love. And then, you know, one feels one is there, one has arrived. Paradise is just around the corner. You think you've got the key to unlock the door. But then suddenly she realized that I had a family which she knew of course beforehand. I mean she knew this as a fact. But the implications were suddenly revealed to her. Should she break up my family now at this stage? Or should she not? No, she doesn't want to do that. And even if she does, will I want to go back to my family later on? So suddenly I found myself again with empty hands wondering why the hell I was ever born. There isn't anything I can do. I can only look forward to another 20 years of life, perhaps 25 if I'm unlucky enough to live as long as that. Never finding what I want. And living with a man who has no hope of ever being able to establish a kind of relationship that he wants with me. Nothing in fact, nothing but wilderness
0: that love From the studios of Bay FM in Byron Bay and across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Not Thinking Straight and I'm Michael Mack. And now for part two of the BBC production Man Alive. This episode is men. It's an amazing historical document full of stereotypes. Despite being a very old recording, these tales are well worth listening to.
6: When you got married, were you consciously aware of the fact that you were marrying somebody with homosexual tendencies?
5: No. I was
3: marrying somebody I loved and that was it. That was it, 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 it. There's no, no
2: question of, of somebody being different because they're homosexual. I mean, a homosexual man is the same
3: as any other man, except this particular one particular thing is, is slightly different. I think that was one of the things that um, surprised me so much about other people's attitudes to it um, after the court case, that it was something they simply could not understand, that somebody could be gifted, talented, charming, lovable, and at the same time a homosexual.
6: This woman married a homosexual. Twice during their marriage, he was arrested for importuning. The second time, he killed himself, rather than face the punishment of a court and the disgust of his friends. (laughs) Men who choose to love other men are treated not only with intolerance and contempt, but prosecuted and jailed. As a result, they become vulnerable to violence, blackmail, and persecution. The Parliament has been asked to consider a private member's bill to remove that constant threat by legalizing homosexual acts between consenting adults and private. But a change in the law doesn't guarantee a change in attitude by the rest of us. For many of us, this is revolting, men dancing with men. Homosexuals in this country today break the law. It's estimated that one man in 20 is a homosexual, These men are a minority. They receive minority treatment, face prejudice and intolerance, stand accused of depravity and vice. In the heterosexual world, the homosexual disturbs conformist values, is shunned, and perhaps misunderstood. Most homosexuals must lead a secret, dark existence. But I think
7: it must definitely... So be that short.
6: In some jobs homosexuality isn't considered a barrier to employment, an unacceptable social stigma. It's even recognized that flair and talent in artistic fields often combine with the sensitivity that's usually part of a homosexual's makeup. This man is a hairdresser. His clients and colleagues would call him queer and wouldn't resent his being so. He recognized what he was when he was very young.
7: I think really when I left home when I was uh, 16 and I went to live in Toronto which was a big city and and one suddenly became aware that there were other people doing the same thing or interested in the same thing and then I discovered that I was homosexual but uh, it didn't bother me and I didn't feel that I was very much different than anybody else they were doing the same thing as I was and they wanted the same things that I did did you at this time find women at all attractive Sexually? Yes. Um, no, I did earlier, um, about 14 I suppose, I, I made various attempts at going to bed with women girls, um, unsuccessfully I'm afraid, uh, and so nothing ever did happen. They never repulsed me, but they, they, since then I've never found sexually attractive. I like women. I enjoy their company. Do you fall in love with them? Of course, yes, very deeply. Often? I did fall in love very often. I don't anymore. I wish I did, in a way. Why? Um, I don't know. I sometimes, I think about it. I worry that, that uh, I don't meet anybody that I can fall in love with anymore. Um, I haven't done, I suppose, for about four years. I uh, had a very unsuccessful, very unhappy relationship with someone that I was very much in love with and when this came to an end uh, i just never found anybody else that i could fall in love with i meet lots of people
6: which means your relationships are fairly short-lived
7: yes do you find this frustrating yes very much because basically i would like to to not settle down in a suburban house with someone but i would like to have a serious relationship with someone and and share the pleasures of life and do things together, and as I see other people doing, and I can't understand why I can't have that. I mean, I see other men doing it, and they live together for a long time, and they go to the theatre together or to the opera together. And uh, I don't. If you don't
6: fall in love and you don't, therefore, have long-term relationships, you tend to have these rather short-term relationships. Would you say you were promiscuous?
7: I am, yes. Why? because I keep searching for someone to fall in love with and when I don't find it in one person, I move on Why is it you think these relationships are so brief? Well, to begin with, it's much easier to have um, a homosexual relationship with someone briefly than just to have a heterosexual relationship because, um, well, sexually it's much much easier a girl doesn't have, a girl has to find a place to go back to and, and this is all very complicated, but with two men it's it's much easier it's very quick sometimes it may all happen in a half an hour you may not even have spoken do you think there are any real disadvantages to being a homosexual in this particular society? I think the principal disadvantage to a lot of people is that they can't have children and a lot of people suffer from this feeling I met someone only the other day who, who felt he as he said he was being cheated that he couldn't have children do you feel like that? No. I don't have any desire to have children. Do you ever find that you're persecuted in any way? No, because being working in the job that I'm in, um, it doesn't bother me. Emotionally, I'm quite stable about the whole thing. I grew up with it. I accepted it. It didn't seem odd. It doesn't seem odd to me now. What about blackmail? This, again, isn't a fear to me at all. I have no family living in this country. And my job is such that it doesn't make any difference. In point of fact, I make it quite clear to most of the people that I work with that I am homosexual. I don't try to pretend that I'm anything else, and they accept it. If they don't, I avoid them.
6: What about physical violence? Do you ever get beaten
7: up? Uh, I have been, yes. It's very unpleasant. What happened? Uh, I was beaten up in a public lavatory and left lying on the floor all rather messy and rather nasty, I'm afraid. Who by? I don't know. By a man who, in fact, uh, made advances to me, first of all. And when I reciprocated, he waited outside and beat me up. And of course, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't call the police. Do you think,
6: from your experience, that homosexuals are born or made? I think, in fact,
7: um, they're both, because Recently, I, I've seen some children, very young children, three and four. Even people I work with remarked that there's no question about that these children will grow up to be homosexual. They're very sensitive, soft, warm, gentle children in comparison to other children, perhaps at the same age, who are brisk and rough and tumble. And One felt that there was something there that was sympathetic. Mm these are the ones who were born, do you think people can be made homosexual and if so how? I would think so, I feel that I was made homosexual Um, but I think primarily from my environment, from my family life, I I was adopted though I didn't know this until I was 15 but um, my parents weren't affectionate Um, I always grew up with a dislike for my father Um, consequently a tremendous attachment to my mother Um, and um, as a result of that, um, I feel that I, I became a homosexual from that. Do you think there's any cure for homosexuality? Um, I don't know. I suppose it depends on how strongly you want to be cured. Would you like to be cured? No. Why not? I'm perfectly happy the way I am. I have no desire to be heterosexual. I don't see any advantages um, in being heterosexual, uh. except in the fact that one might have police protection, but... Um, no, no, I have no desire to change,
6: even if I could. Doctors, more than most people, should perhaps understand what causes men to be homosexual. This man is a doctor, but he's also a homosexual. In 30 years as a GP, he's learnt what the attitude of the law is towards men like him. I remember once, Mm -hmm. most vividly, uh, this was a case
8: in which several men had been involved. And after the case was over, and um, the various witnesses as to the good character of the men involved in the case when they ca- came, the judge said afterwards, it always astounded him um, that in this type of case, um, all these homosexuals could uh, produce uh, witnesses who uh, would swear that it was such a good character and so on. Why on earth shouldn't a homosexual be of good character? Uh, another thing, um, which again I've noticed, uh, I would say quite different in the olden days, it went against one if one was a churchgoer, and if by any chance one came across the law, then all and some judges included, thought not only were you a bloody homer, but a bloody hypocrite as well. I'm certain, in my own mind, it's, if you take the case of well-known people, say like Cecil Osborne, the Earl of Dudley, John gordon no- Nobody could ever convince those three men that um, uh, homosexuality is not uh, synonymous with um, vice and depravity. A man like Osborne can't even discuss the, uh, the subject, he just explodes from trying to. The Earl of Dudley in the House of Lords last year gave us his opinion that prison was too good for all homosexuals. And as everybody knows, John Gordon always likes to fire off the big guns against the homos every now and then. Although, I'm sure, basically, he's a kindly man. I mean, he takes the cudgels off of other people, but uh, he he can't uh, bear the word
6: homosexual to be mentioned. Have you found, in, in the course of your career, that being a homosexual has been a disadvantage at all as far as your patients were concerned? Uh, not in the least, no, not as far as my patients are concerned, no.
8: In a way, I, uh, I might almost say I think at times it's been an advantage, particularly when dealing with um, women.
6: I think some people might be slightly appalled at the idea of having a homosexual doctor, particularly if they were going to have take small sons to him, for instance. Yes. Did you find this? Uh, no, I didn't find it because uh, my
8: patients... Um, uh, either didn't know, or else they were um, civilised civilized enough, not in any way to show it to me. I had no difficulties in that way, no. Not in practice, no. Do you think parents ought to worry about that sort of thing? No, I don't, no. Why not? Uh, well, I think the majority of um, uh, doctors in their work uh, are themselves civilised and behave themselves properly.
6: What have you found uh, during the course of your career has been the attitude of other doctors towards you when they've known? The, um, uh, the attitudes of the, um,
8: hard-up members of my profession the consultants, their attitude has been absolutely, perfectly all right. Their attitude to me and my patients. Um, I'm sorry to say that hasn't been the case with, um, my some some of my um brother uh, general practitioners what have they done well they've sort of either ostracized or semi-ostracized me um uh, i can give you some examples if you like um uh, there was one doctor i'd uh, never even spoken to him he was taken ill and um, he uh, got a locum And after a few days he was talking to the locum and um, he asked the locum who it was. the locum said that I was and this doctor said oh good lord you don't want to go to him, don't you know he's a homo? Well, I'm awfully pleased to say the locum had enough guts to say uh, indeed he
6: knew and that was the very reason he went, because he himself was homo. Have you found uh, in fact that being a homosexual has damaged your career at all, has made life difficult for you at all?
8: Oh, it uh, it hasn't damaged my career, oh no. Um, I've always put my career first and nothing has deviated me from that uh, course, nothing. It never damaged my career at all, but it's um, altered very greatly uh, my uh, social life. You see, you must remember um, my working life was um, spent in the provinces had I been in London, of course, all these, my problems would never have arisen. Uh, all the awful things that I heard people say about has made me uh, you know, very much get into my own little shell, as it were. Um, I never wanted any of my patients or my normal friends uh, to, um, you know, supposing they'd entertain me or anything like that. I never wanted other people to say, um, do you realize the other night you were entertaining a bloody homo? I never wanted that to happen uh, to any of these people. So, of course, the only way to counteract it was to sort of withdraw myself um, uh, from all social life. When I'd settled down, I could have become a magistrate. There again, um, I felt the first homo case that came before me it would have knocked me sideways. And so, of course, I had to turn that down. I'm sorry, because it was work that I should have been interested in
0: themselves. From the studios of Bay FM in Byron Bay, and broadcasting across Australia on the community radio network, you're listening to Not Thinking Straight with Michael Mack.
6: Most homosexuals dread getting old, dread losing their looks, fear in particular, the final loneliness of living without a companion like men needing wives they search for someone with whom they can establish a lasting relationship which includes warmth and protection as well as sex these two have done that have lived together for 26 years they might almost be a married couple but they're still queer in the minority have they been happy
9: compared with a lot of married couples reasonably yes reasonably happy there's always something that you you know, you wish for, but you just
6: can't. What's the thing you particularly wish for?
9: Well, I think the... the sort of natural man-woman relationship, I think. Mm. I, I, you know, really wish for that. wish I had... Yes. No, I wish yes. I was normal in that way. Yes, I, I think so, yes. It will be much simpler, much easier. It's terribly complicated when you go mm. out Yes. People. after all everywhere around everything is made for married people it's not made for people like us it's, things are awkward aren't they mm-hmm. I mean as, as things are we're yes. uh, reasonably happy I think we've um, been much more fortunate than a lot of people in yes. the same straight. yes I, I think if, if I had started out with anyone else who perhaps have been like a lot of homosexuals are, rather shallow. It might have perhaps affected me and I might have been, in the, in the end, got like them. I think I was lucky that I, I happened to meet someone who is honest and who is reliable, that you know, I'm all right, you know, it hasn't affected me. I haven't, I don't act like most of them do. I don't
6: have to. How, in fact, did you each know the other was homosexual? Oh.
9: Well, I've always found that difficult. And... I wasn't sure with my friend. But, um... It it happened after we'd known each other, perhaps, oh, I think, eight months, perhaps and we'd gone to a concert many miles from where we were living and we got stranded and we couldn't, we couldn't get home that night. We were with other friends, mixed friends, and it happened that we put up at a place and there was only this double bed for us and we had to sleep together. And we did, we didn't, I didn't sleep all night because I realized how I felt. This was the first time it ever happened I mean, and. Also, my friend was the same. He was tossing and turning all night, he couldn't sleep. And by the morning, I realized that he must be feeling the same way that I was, and, and so that's how it started. That was the first time with me. I must have been perhaps mm, 21, 22 then, when that first happened.
6: Did you fall in love with each other?
9: That's, um, well, there's a straight yes or no. I... I th- thought I did. I think I can speak for you. No, you didn't fall in love with me, did you? No. I thought I did with him, but I'm not sure now whether it wasn't just that he was the first person like myself that I'd met, and it was just that it was someone that I could talk to, and someone it relieved my feelings to, for the first time. and. Perhaps I I mixed that up with what I thought was love. I don't know. But at the time I thought, and for perhaps many, many years, I thought I was in love.
6: But you say you didn't fall in love at all. You didn't even think you were in love. With the work went here? No. No. Do you have any regrets about the last 25 years?
9: Well, no. Uh, I wish I had been born now, because a public opinion is different, and I would have read more, and I would have known more, and I wouldn't have started out quite so backward and f- frightened, shy, not knowing anything when I started out. Life when before you meet someone is hell. It's, you, just, you never met anyone else. It, it is really hell for a person. Uh, and you get that you feel you really want to jump off a bridge. You don't know what to do. You walk the streets, and you you, you don't know a single person to talk to. You, nowadays, I imagine you could find find out information somewhere or other, but you couldn't then before the war. It, it was all hush-hush. So I wish I had been born a few years later, and my, teenage, my teen years have been wouldn't have been quite so difficult.
6: Most homosexuals don't live together, don't even live in big cities. They go to the large towns looking for others like themselves, desperately lonely men, scared of discovery. Men like this clerk from a small market town at Loose in London, the sort of man the present laws seem designed to protect us from. For him, how did it all start?
5: Well, I met someone in a gent's toilet. Uh, When I was about 15, I had no idea what was going to happen at all and uh, it was somebody in uniform and uh, he just got talking to me and we came out and we just walked along walking and talking and uh, to me, well, that was something. I eventually went somewhere and things happened, made love to me and held me and uh, some other things. And we came out and we talked about all several things, films and music and just enjoying, you know, friendship actually. And we arranged to meet a week later. Uh, I went home and uh, the next uh, next night when I went to bed, uh, my mother came into my bedroom and said, uh, I hear you've been with a soldier and I couldn't deny it. And she said, well, tomorrow she, you better pack your things and go, she says, because uh, I don't want anything like that. So when I got up in the morning, I just asked her if I could stay, and she said yes. Eventually, the police came to where I worked, and told me I ought to go to the police station and give a statement of what happened. And uh, I didn't know the person's name, or I, I can't remember his name, it's a long time ago. And uh, I made a statement, and we arranged to meet and the next week. And I think the police were in the doorways of the shops waiting for him to come, but he never came.
6: That was the beginning of it all. Can you describe what it is about another man that makes you feel at home with him? Uh, Well,
5: I don't know. I think it's because um, with with someone of my own sex, I feel secure. I feel that, well, as I say, I feel at home with someone of my own sex.
6: Do you find it very difficult to find and meet other homosexuals?
5: Yes, I do. Very much. Why? Well, where can one meet homosexuals in a small town where everybody knows you? Uh, plus the fact that there's not, um, there's not many people, uh, many homosexuals in the town where I live. Um, the other, uh, only other places that you go to go around the toilets and I don't wish that. Um, the other place uh, is to come to London where you probably meet all kinds of people and that's what I've done.
6: How often do you come to London?
5: Well now I don't come so frequent but uh, I used to come quite, quite often at weekends
6: Where did you used to go to meet other homosexuals?
5: Well, I tried doing several things, actually. I know that they sound perhaps very stupid, but, um, as I like the theatre, and I like the cinema. um, I used to go, when I arrived in London in the morning, I used to go to the certain theatre or the certain film that I wanted to see. And I used to book two seats, quite expensive ones because I like the good things and hoping that I would sell the other ticket just before the performance started. And I would make sure then, that way I would make sure that there would be somebody that was single sitting next to me at the cinema or the theater. But in many cases I just lost money because I couldn't sell the tickets. And so I bought two tickets for the in one. Did you ever manage to sell one to somebody who was single? Sometimes it was a woman, <laughs> and so well, I last, I last always actually. And then, uh, I mean, I used to come to London because I wanted the company of somebody to share the films and the theatre, somebody to go and eat with in a restaurant or go and have a drink with. But it seems that when I did come to London, I usually met the wrong people.
6: Have you had any other experiences like this?
5: I know that I'm probably different to a lot more of the homosexuals. They probably went round the toilets to find somebody to. Have. Uh, sexual relations with, but I wanted somebody with company a male person, not a female, a male person and so I went into this toilet and um, I suppose two or three times of course, in the course of an afternoon and uh, I came out and somebody, a young person, said that there was arresting me for platooning and so they took me to some police station and uh, Took my fingerprints and things away from me. I said that I would have to stay there until I appeared in court on Monday. Nobody knew about this at all because I thought I came up for a job. And uh, this is well, I never had experience like it before. I couldn't believe that just because I wanted somebody to love me and, and to have friendship with it, I had to suffer all this. And so they put me in a cell, and I was in cell from Saturday afternoon until Monday morning. I never slept, I just sat and cried. And Monday they came and took me and uh, took me in Black Mariah to the courts. Well, there were just hundreds of people there. I just couldn't believe my eyes because I just, well, I just couldn't believe that I was there. And naturally I'd never been in court before. I didn't know what to do or what to say. I didn't even know what was going to happen to me. And uh, I asked the detective, like, what well, I was to say, and time was plead guilty, I said, yeah. And uh, so I went to court, and uh, I knew this was my chance to say something. And they said, had I got anything to say? And I said, yes, I had. It took me a lot of courage to say it. And I told them that the reason why I had done that was because I was lonely. That was the reason why I came to London, to try and find somebody. And I was lucky. They just gave me two years probation. I came home. Nobody knows about that at all.
6: Do you think you need help?
5: Yes, I do. Well, I think everybody who is a homosexual needs help. They need someone. I mean, that's perhaps what I'm searching for now, is that I need someone with whom I can share life with. That's all I need. But it seems
0: that it's wrong. From the studios of Bay FM in Byron Bay and broadcasting across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Not Thinking Straight with Michael Mack. And this is the epilogue to Chapter 6, the final episode in Eric Marcus's very powerful series, Coming of Age During the AIDS Crisis.
10: Interview
11: with Vito Russo, Wednesday, December 21st, 1988. Location is Vito Russo's home in New York City. Interviewer is Eric Marcus. Tape one, side one.
10: Also at the top of my list was Vito Russo. He was a legendary changemaker. Vito shook up the film industry with his 1981 book, The Celluloid Closet, which was about how Hollywood's bigoted portrayal of gay men and lesbians helped shape public opinion about homosexuals. Vito co-founded GLAD, a media watchdog organization originally called the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation. He also co-founded ACT UP, the AIDS coalition to unleash power. Vito had been entwined with the gay rights movement in New York for decades and had lost so many loved ones to AIDS, including his boyfriend, Jeffrey, who had died in March 1986.
12: He's been gone almost three years now, and I'm still sick. And I'm very lonely. You know, it's hard to live alone and be sick alone. And as many of your friends as you have, and I have good, loving friends and a great support system, people cannot be sick for you. And they can't suffer for you, and they can't be with you all the time. Gay life is very interesting now, because we've divided into the positives and the negatives in some cases. And it's difficult to meet people, and then on top of that, you meet somebody who likes you or whatever, and then you have to deal with the fact that you're sick, and you have to tell them that, and you have to hope that they can handle it. I mean, you know, who the hell is going to get into a relationship with somebody who is probably going to die soon? You know, they don't want to put themselves through that. Is it so painful? Because it is so terribly painful. And I know how painful it is. I've lost too many people. It's really astonishing when you look back on it and you think, most of the people who are my friends are dead. Most of my friends are dead. And at this age, that shouldn't be. You're only 42. Yeah. Yeah. It's not natural by any definition of the word natural. The
11: images I've seen of you in the last couple of years, well, I've seen you on television. Mm. I've seen you in a very, very activist role. Yes. So it's been, age, has it been age then that's propelled? Yeah, it reason? has,
13: mm-hmm.
12: it has. I mean, I was uh, one of the people, um, along with Larry Kramer and Vivian Shapiro and Tim Sweeney and a couple other people who founded ACT UP, which became a whole new phase of activism, not only for me, but for the community in general. And it's a new kind of activism because it's created a coalition. The ACT UP is composed of gay people and straight people women and men, black and white, you know, and all these people have one thing in common and that's they want to put an end to the AIDS crisis by, you know, any means possible.
10: On October 8th, 1990, I interviewed CNN business anchor Tom Cassidy.
12: Office of Tom Cassidy at CNN
11: in New York City. Interviewer is Eric Marcus, tape one,
10: side one. Tom got to be one of the first openly gay national news correspondents. Not because he'd intended to be, but because his AIDS diagnosis forced him out of the closet. He decided to use his diagnosis as a way of educating the public when CBS in New York approached him about a special series.
14: Would you agree to participate in a story, a series, that we want to do about AIDS through your eyes? And AIDS was turning 10 years old in CBS's eyes. They wanted to look at the plague through my eyes. Ten years later. Yeah. And uh, I gave him a very... I didn't even blink. I just said, and that kind of threw him because he thought he was going to have to sell me on it. Right. And I said, sure. Why'd you say sure?
11: Because that meant coming out about having AIDS publicly and about being gay.
14: I wanted to do some good. What could you do? Uh, Make AIDS patients feel better. Mm -hmm. Make the public understand that some of their TV newsmen are gay and sick. Uh, Everyone identified me as one of the the good guys. And there are millions of people that have seen me on television. And I wanted them to know that a favorite of theirs could get this disease. And And secondarily, he happened to be gay. Uh, what
11: would that show them? What, what
14: would that show? What would- <coughs> well, that AIDS is, a, is a, a much, it's not just a gay problem. Uh, when when um, gay people die of AIDS, the society is so much poorer. Because in a lot of ways, uh, gay people um, are the spice of life. Life isn't as much fun in this country after losing 85,000, very creative, uh, well-intentioned, funny, um, productive people in the primes of their lives. And the straight world sort of knew it, but they really needed to have it mapped out right in their face. I didn't think I had anything to lose by trying it. I guess I really wanted to make a political statement as a gay person as well as an AIDS patient.
10: Damien Martin, Vito Russo, and Tom Cassidy. All three men would be dead before my book was published. And then there was Morty Manford. I always identified so strongly with him. A couple of gay Jews from Queens who wanted to make the world a better place for people like us. Morty and his mother, Jean, had co-founded an organization for parents of gay people back in 1972 that's now called PFLAG. Morty had also been the president of the Gay Activist Alliance and a major leader in the post-Stonewall gay liberation phase of the movement in New York City. Interview with Morty Manford, tape two, side one. I talked to Morty over two visits, I had the sense he wasn't well, but skirted the issue of AIDS right up until the very end of our last session together.
11: I think the component in all of this is anger, and even more deeply felt now
15: because of AIDS, because people have died. Uh, People are hurt. Mm -hmm. You see your friends all around you dying. Has that
11: had a significant impact for you? yeah I guess it has is this something I shouldn't ask
15: it affects all of us i mean it's 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 devastating well what about you I mean, in terms of your friends have you had friends yeah yeah we all have haven't we
16: yeah uh
11: my lover's fine Um, my best friend's lover has AIDS so it's that close but it hasn't uh, we went and got tested last year and both were shocked by the the results Um, he came out in San Francisco I came out in New York and the statistics were not in my favor Mm. Um, I still thank God every morning because given the statistics I should not
15: I shouldn't even be alive. Even where I was and what I did. Well, what have, what have we lost? 65,000 people so far? hmm And uh, a million of us... A million of us. It's not all gays. A million people, they say, are infected now. hmm I it's, mean, it's... It's just... Uh, impossible to grasp
13: Mm -hmm.
15: that.
11: Do you ever wonder what would have happened if not for the work you and many others did in the late 60s and early 70s, if AIDS had happened in pre-1970 times? Well,
15: I put it in terms of the gay movement, Mm -hmm. if there hadn't been a movement, we would be ill-prepared not that uh, we've had uh, the kind of resources we should have to deal with it today, but at least we've got our own infrastructure that's been there to assist and press for greater resources. You know, a few years ago, when the hysteria was much greater, we had these lunatics calling for uh, gays or people infected with AIDS, to be put in a concentration camp kind of setting and uh, there was some popularity to that idea there's no telling what would have been and in in this context given the enormous fear and devastation of the disease but for the movement and all those wonderful people out there and, and you know all the gay organizations and and, and, and social service outfits and political groups we have been pretty horrendous i think the uh, existence of the aids crisis has given a lot of bigots fodder they've used the aids issue to camouflage their prejudice or to justify it. But I I think, I think, I think we've done pretty good in uh, at least holding, you know, back that, that uh, pressure to uh, uh, backtrack. I'm, you know, not being terribly articulate. Last time we spoke, it was it was in the morning, and
11: you're being just as I, articulate. You just don't. No,
15: I'm not. I'm 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 fading, grasping for words, and it's okay. But
11: uh, I can edit just the same. Thank you. Anything you want to add?
15: On your next trip to New York, if uh, I think of something else. Uh, I'm sure
10: (laughs) will. It wasn't until years later that I discovered Morty had been diagnosed just a couple of weeks before that conversation. Like Damien, Vito, and Tom, Morty didn't live long enough to see his story in print. From the studios
0: of Bay FM in Byron Bay, and broadcasting across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to
10: Not Thinking Straight with Michael Mack. A few months before the book was set to be published, Jean Manford called to tell me that her son was dying. She said Morty was upset that so many of the movement's triumphs, the untold stories of the fight for gay liberation, might be lost with the deaths of people like him. He feared they'd be forgotten, that he'd be forgotten. I sent Jean the pre-publication manuscript of the book so she could read Morty's chapter aloud to him. He was home, extremely frail, and no longer able to read it for himself. Morty died on May 14th, 1992. He was 41. The first edition of Making Gay History, which was called Making History, was published two and a half weeks after Morty's death. Postscript Morty Manford, Damian Martin, Vito Russo, and Tom Cassidy were just four of the seven people I interviewed for the book who would ultimately die of complications from AIDS. It wasn't until the mid-1990s that there were effective life-saving treatments for HIV-AIDS. And 40 years after that first New York Times headline about a rare cancer seen in 41 homosexuals, there's still no vaccine. In 2019, the most recent year for which U.S. statistics are available, there were approximately 35,000 new HIV infections. 1.2 million people were living with HIV. Around 5,200 died from AIDS-related causes. And worldwide in 2020, approximately 37 million people were living with HIV. 680,000 died from AIDS-related illnesses. Globally, since the start of the epidemic, AIDS has cost 36 million people their lives. If you look at the dedication page of the front of that first 1992 edition of Making History, you'll see that I dedicated the book to three people. My grandmother, because she was my rock, and paid for the computer on which I wrote it. My mother, because my grandmother said that to keep the peace, I couldn't dedicate the book to her unless I included my mother and put her first. As ever, Grandma May was right. And I dedicated it to Homer. That was my nickname for Barry, because his fingerprints are on almost every page of the book. I couldn't begin to count the number of times I asked him to read something, edit a passage, or to offer his advice when I hit a wall and couldn't write another word. My relationship with Barry does not have a fairy tale ending, despite how it began on a sailboat on Peconic Bay back in 1983. I'm
14: Shane O'Neill. I'm here at Eric Marcus's house, and it's our third session taping of Eric's Oral History.
10: How are you feeling, Eric? I liked interviewing people better than I liked being interviewed.
14: What, now forgive me if this is too personal, we can just skip over it. Did anything change in your relationship with Barry? When was your next HIV test? What was your thinking in terms of how it impacted your relationship?
10: It's not too personal a question, and I have thought about it. And um, AIDS pretty much killed the joy in our sex life. And we never found our way back. I was still terrified, Um, and we still practiced very, very safe sex, Um, and I still have anxiety all these years later, and I've obviously been tested since. Um, I shouldn't say obviously, I've certainly been tested since. It was such a terrifying time that I couldn't, even though I knew he was negative and and I was negative, it wasn't as if we could throw open the doors and skip into the street and say, we can do everything. We're both both negative. Barry and I were elated and relieved that we were negative. Um, We didn't go back to having the kind of sexual relationship that we'd had. Barry and I split up three months after Making History was published, and I moved back to New York City. Our relationship unraveled for so many reasons, not just our loss of intimacy. It was complicated and painful. He threw me out. And he had every right to. Barry found love again and spent the last 18 years of his life with the love of his life who was at his side when Barry died of pancreatic cancer in May 2020. He was 67. I found love again, too. My partner Barney and I have been together for 27 years. My understanding of what it takes to have a mutually satisfying, committed relationship now goes well beyond having a bedroom with wall-to-wall carpeting. 100% wool. We work at it together. Decades of therapy have helped. I walk past an otherwise nondescript brick building nestled in a grove of mature London plane trees a few times a week. It's just a few blocks north of where Barney and I live in Chelsea. I never pass that squat beige clinic without thinking about the first time I got tested there for HIV. Sometimes I get a sinking feeling in my stomach when I think about an all-too-easy-to-imagine alternative reality where the good news I got there was bad. Other times it takes my breath away when I consider how lucky I am when so many others were not. And still, other times I look at that New York City Department of Health building and think of it as the place... Where I was born again. At age thirty. Many thanks to our hardworking crew at Making Gay History, including story editor Sarah Burningham, assistant producer and sound designer Ray Kantrowitz, Deputy Director Inga Tataya, researcher Brian Faree, Research Intern Amelia Donhauser, Photo Editor Michael Green. And our social media producers, Christiana Pena and Nick Porter. This episode was mixed and mastered by Evan Viola. Special thanks to Will Coley for his production help. This season was recorded at CDM Sound Studios. Thanks as well to our interviewer slash oral historian, Shane O'Neill, and our listening circle, including Sid Ballou, Cheryl Ferjanik, Dr. Jamila Humphrey, Barney Carpfinger, Ann Northrup, Benjamin Riskin, Jenna Weiss Berman, and Mike Weinrip. Thanks also to Salve Simonson and Heidi Katz for sharing their memories. And special thanks to research sleuth Tyler Albertario and genealogist Michael Leclerc for helping to find Salve. Thank you to the New York Public Library's Manuscripts and Archives Division for their assistance. Our theme music was composed by Fritz Myers with additional scoring by Ray Kantrowitz. This season of the podcast was made possible by the generous support of the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS, the Calamus Foundation, the Kipper Family Foundation, Christopher Street Financial, Andrew and Erwin Press, Joel Sakuda and Christopher Williams, Bill Cox, Louis Bradbury, Jeff Soraf, Kathy Dancer, Mitchell Drazen, Brian Christine and Alex White, and scores of other individual supporters. Coming of Age During the AIDS Crisis is a production of Making Gay History. This season was my story. Stay tuned for our next season. We're planning to bring you a range of voices from the HIV-AIDS epidemic, people you might not have heard from before, but whose stories and experiences will help bring this history to life. I'm Eric Marcus. So long. Until next time.
0: From the studios of Bay FM in Byron Bay and broadcasting across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Not Thinking Straight with Michael Mack.
17: Oh my gosh, you guys. Oh, that is a true story of how I came out to my dad. <sighs> it was a very short conversation. <laughs> We're Italian, very dramatic. Um I, uh, I feel like people don't really know how to talk to gay people, and I say this because I did a show the other week, and this guy came up afterwards. I think he was trying to compliment me, but he didn't realize he was actually insulting me. He walked right up, and he was like, uh, hey, buddy, yeah, just want to let you know for a gay guy, you talk uh, kind of gay, kind of straight, yeah. <laughs> yeah, hey, you're like half and half. Well, thank you. Half and half, I don't know what that means, you know? What does that even mean? Like What am I walking around with my friends like, hey, girls, let's go shopping for some pussy. <sighs> if it's on sale, <laughs> I'll do it. <laughs> you know? I don't know, I keep standing like Peter Pan. I keep like, I don't keep <like>. doing <sighs> that. He was really gay, Peter Pan. <laughs> Wasn't Peter Pan like the super gay character, like, I wanna be a boy forever! <laughs> <laughs> Got it. <sighs> I don't know. I, uh, so like, the thing is, like, are there any the gays here? Right. <laughs> All right? <okay. laughs> Just me. Um, I'm a lesbian, No.) <laughs> so, you know, I'm gay, uh, But to add on to that, my older brother is also gay, so my dad is... <laughs> proud. And the thing is, like, I was a very flamboyant kid. Like, there was no question that I was gay. But it didn't occur to me that my older brother might have also been a very flamboyant kid until my mom sent me some family videos recently of when we were younger. And it's when the Chicago Bulls won a championship. And they're going around the entire house and my whole family's screaming. They're like, Michael Jordan rules! Michael Jordan rules! Then they get to my nine-year-old brother and he's like, well, if anyone rules, it's Janet Jackson. she does not play for the bulls, you know? <laughs> like, my favorite thing to oh, this is so embarrassing, like, my favorite thing to do when I was a kid, I would come home from preschool, I was like four years old, and we had a giant tree in my backyard, and I'd walk around the tree every day and sing to the birds like Sleeping Beauty did. <laughs> every day. Every <clears> day. <throat> oh. <laughs> My neighbors did not respond the same way. But I can just imagine now, like my mom looking through the back window, watching me sing to the birds, having a conversation with my dad being like, Steve, I think this one's gayer than the other one. what is happening in my uterus? (laughs) It's like, what is, like my mom is making so many gay kids. (laughs) Can you just imagine her gynecologist appointment just like, all right, Sherry, let's have a look in here and everybody does that. That can't be right. You know, just. (laughs) Tonics shooting out of my mom's vagina. Oh, you guys have been great. Thanks so much. I'm gay, in case you're blind.
18: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Homophobes over here, not clapping. You know? Homophobes. Or you could be old and be like, she's just sporty. I'm gay. I am Gay. Spoiler alert. Sporty Spice also gay. Uh, I wish I knew I was gay when I was 12. You know how amazing sleepovers would have been. What? Truth or dare? Uh, dare. <laughs> Show me your titties, everyone. Yeah. Bring your mom down here. Let's play this game. Bring your dad down here, I'm confused. Uh, I had a hard time coming out to my dad because he's Muslim. Now he expects me to get like 10 wives. It's a lot of wives, guys. I do have one wife, I got married last year. I moonwalked my way to marriage. My wife's family is from the south, they're Republican. They go to church every Sunday. I was like the first lesbian girlfriend she introduced. I guess the others were straight. Uh, (laughs) Can you imagine how terrifying that must have been for them? The first lesbian coming to their house, like what they expected to show up that day must have been like, I've stolen your daughter's heart. (laughs) And I built a deck out front. It's a lesbian courtesy deck. These are your grandchildren, they're cats. 25, yes, 25. And they were pretty shocked at first, but the cool thing is they love me now. They love me. I know my father-in-law loves me because he took me hunting and he didn't shoot me. It's beautiful. (laughs) My God, hunting's crazy. Hunting's crazy. He woke me up at three in the morning. Come on kid, let's go. I put on an orange onesie. We go into the woods. He's like dipping tampons in deer pee and hanging them on bushes. (laughs) I'm looking at him like, who's got the weird lifestyle now? I don't want to kill animals. I didn't really, I mean like hunting. I wanted to go hunting because I wanted to prove to him that having me is just like having a son-in-law. You know, but I'm trying too hard. I'm like standing up, peeing in the woods. This is amazing. This is great. (laughs) No, it's supposed to trickle down your leg. That's, pass me a tampon, sop it up. My mother-in-law is so cute. She was like horrified in the beginning. She came over for a girls weekend a while ago in Brooklyn. She was like stopping people in the streets being like, sorry, I just have to tell you, this is my daughter. And this is her wife, what? (laughs) And this is Brooklyn, the lady's like, ah, honey, I'm late for a drag show. (laughs) We get it, you're normal. I wanted to come out to my Muslim family for a long time, but my dad was always like, shh, keep it a secret. Secrets are cool, man. (laughs) It's like, dad, what's your five year plan with a secret? I keep on showing up to family things with like my white best friend. (laughs) She loves Ramadan. (laughs) Pretty soon we've got a little kid best friend. (laughs) It's weird. We found him in a well. I want to have a kid eventually. The only thing that sucks about being gay is in order to have a baby that looks half like me and half like my wife, I need my brother's sperm. Which is the worst sentence anyone said out loud. I asked him for super cash. (laughs) I was like, how's your day? Can I have like a dollop of your jizz? <laughs> and his real response was, I just don't know how my future wife would feel about it. It's like, I don't know how I feel about your future wife. She sounds like a bitch. <laughs> I'm Sabrina Jalice. Good night, guys.
0: Selena Jalise and Mateo laying before her the studios of bay fm and byron bay and broadcasting across australia on the community radio network you're listening to not thinking straight with michael mack i first heard of donna persona in a video clip by perfume genius called the normal song this haunting amazing 76 year old redefines the traditional sense of beauty she is in her own way a goddess It may be no surprise that many of you have not heard of Donna Persona. She is a San Francisco legend and probably not that well known in Australia. Donna is an artist and activist for transgender rights who got her start with the Coquettes. She served on the boards of Trans March and Transgender Day of Remembrance and on the committees to name streets after Vicky Marlene and Compton's Cafeteria in San Francisco's Transgender Cultural District. In 2018, she raised San Francisco's first transgender flag at City Hall with Mayor London Breed. Donna was the subject of the Iris Prize-winning 2013 short film My Mother and was featured in the film Beautiful by Night Donna has been covered in media outlets such as Out, The Advocate and San Francisco Chronicle and The Daily Beast. The immersive play she co-wrote the Compton's Cafeteria Riot recreates San Francisco transgender history and received many accolades including San Francisco Weekly's Best of 2018. Before we join Donna as she tells her own story, here is the song where I first became aware of her, Perfume Genius with The Normal Song, arguably one of the most beautiful songs I've ever heard.
16: Hold my hand I am afraid Please pray for me When I am away Comfort the ground No memory No matter how sad No Violence No matter how bad Can darken the heart Or tear I'm mm-hmm. Take my hand
19: Are we live? <laughs> but it's Saturday Morning Live, right? <laughs> I came to um, my performance life and uh, the realization that I wanted to uh, live now as a woman. It started at the age of 59 for me, and you know the reason. One of the reasons that it took so long for me is uh, I want to live, and I, I, I was told by the world that uh, you keep acting out like that. you 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 go further than you are, and uh, it's going to go badly for you. I go back to when drag queens were personas non grata you, and if, if I knew some of them, you try to keep that a secret. I remember friends that somebody was after them that killed them because they found out they weren't a woman. I have been doing activist work, you know, I say I've been here since 2010 but I've been doing activist work, not continuously as I am t- today, but on and off for 50 years, or more than 50 years. In 2010, I started going to trans march. So here I saw a thousand people or whatever, and uh, they were attempting to live how they feel. And it was beautiful. I went as far as being a board member of Trans March uh, and also on the committees of uh, Transgender Day of Visibility and Transgender Day of Remembrance. I aligned myself with Open House, which is an organization that provides housing for LGBTQ seniors. With the Lyric and Open House and Trans March, there is a youth elder branch. The last five years, I've, I've been the MC for them, and I perform. Those uh, elders there, many of them, they don't have grandchildren. They don't have nieces and nephews. And sometimes when they do, they're not a part of that family. So when I'm there, I encourage the young, I said, please don't cluster with the other youth. Please find an elder and, you know, have an abuelita or something. Sit with one of the elders and tell them some of your stories and ask them to talk to you about their lives a little bit. And, you know, this year, the, the theme uh, of pride is generations of resistance, and so, here are the different generations. The powers that be want to take thing, take it all away from us. We're gonna get rubbed out, and, and or, or there's gonna be an attempt, so, so we have to be an army, like, and, and uh, fight against that, resist against that, and make sure that, that we don't go back. That, that's that's what it means to me to interact with the young people, and you know. Also, I want them to see, I'm still here. You know, someday, if you're lucky, you're going to be you're in your 70s, and so I want them also to know that you can have an old age and and uh, thrive. You know, I'm thriving. I'm having the best life possible.
0: As we just heard donna persona never put on a dress until 2008 despite her age she went on to be one of the most successful performers in san francisco when shane Zeldavar showed up at the casting call for the comptons cafeteria riot a play presented by the tenderloin museum about the 1966 riot between cafeteria customers trans women drag queens and the lgbtq community members and the san francisco police the 27-year-old actor, had only recently learned about the historic event. If I'd known that story earlier on, been taught about it in high school, he recalls wistfully, this is a group of people fighting for their rights as human beings, and they're still doing that fight today. The riot, which took place a full three years before Stonewall, is the first known instance of militant queer resistance to police harassment in the United States history. And in recent years, thanks to a 2005 documentary, Screaming Queens, and this play written by Mark Nasser, Colette Legrand and Donna Persona, this seminal moment in LGBTQ and Bay Area history is finally getting the attention it deserves. In this segment, we peek behind the stage curtain, hear a little bit of the rehearsals and hear from some of the people who lived that experience.
20: Compton's cafeteria was sort of like the living room of the Tenderloin.
19: I saw these beautiful women. I then discovered that they were born uh, male.
20: Some cop came into Compton's cafeteria and basically started harassing one of the queens. She ended up throwing her coffee in his face, and that started three or four day riots that took to the streets, and again was the first collective uprising of LGBT people in this country.
19: They were determined to to live their life the way they felt was uh, authentic.
20: The Compton's transgender cultural district was created um, out of I think a little bit of desperation. We founded the district to recognize the place's history, but also to preserve um, the community that still exists there.
17: For a trace of mascara on
7: the wrong night, they would beat you, bust you up in the most despicable way.
10: You know when your buttons are on the wrong side, pal? Come here.
16: You're under arrest for female impersonate. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. No! No!
19: No! No! In the 60s in San Francisco, anything that had to do with gay was a secret. It was almost like literally entering another world. Those transgender women who were beautiful people. They took care of me. And I'm making it a mission to have the world see them through my eyes.
11: And you know, it's the 60s,
19: it's,
11: this is a new time, I can't believe, you know, what they're challenging, what they're saying. Uh,
0: You know, there's very few facts about what exactly happened that night. What facts there are, we put into the play. The rest of it really is stories about Colette and Donna and their experiences.
12: I was humiliated but it happens to all the girls.
0: Everybody would go to Compton's and sit for
19: three or four hours and just have coffee and talk, and it was the only safe place around where everybody could be around each other, you know what I mean? Yeah, because the streets were no good, and the police would be on everybody. I was about 18 years old when I discovered Compton's cafeteria. It was the most exciting thing up to that point in my life. Boys, standing with boys, you know, just everything I dreamed about. Wow, I loved it.
5: I
21: first got to know Donna as a performer. We met backstage, and I saw her do her thing. I was blown away. Like, this woman is of her age, and she's having the time of her life. Lovely. I can't wait for you to see my mom. Yeah. She told me about the story, I read the script, and then she got very personal with me about her experiences. Growing up in San Jose, being in the closet. Thank you, thank you. Let's see, let's
19: see. Let's see if the slipper fits.
21: When I moved to the Bay, I really did not know much about transgender. I pretty much was a gay guy. I did drag a few times in college. The reality is I have it easier now than it would have been back then in many ways. She was always scared that she'd get caught. So she was always filled with a bit of anxiety. Hearing it from Donna's perspective just gave me a whole other sense of respect for Donna and for the story. She's my elder. She's lived this experience.
12: What happened? Get it out. No use holding
21: on to it. I was at the cat club. Some good guy hit on me. I came back to my drink and he was still there. I think he put something in it because I got very dizzy. He said he would help me and the next thing I know, I'm at his hotel. And I screamed, telling him no. I told him that this doesn't feel good. Stop. As soon as I was able to get out, I went to the police station. I told them what happened and you know what they did? They laughed. They said I was a man and I couldn't get raped. And the sad thing is that I believe them. <laughs>
19: I've had some sleepless nights. It's almost like going through it again for me. And that's not so easy.
21: This is a group of people fighting for their rights as human beings. And they're still doing a fight today. Tonight is our opening night. The folks that have made this history were doing this for them. Yes, I was at the cat club the other night. Some guy hit on me, he was handsome, older. But then he got a little weird. So I went to
19: the dance. I'm willing to sacrifice. I'm willing to go through it again and again. Because I believe, unfortunately, most of them died not fully understanding what they'd hoped, that they were just normal, good people. I know that now, even if they don't know about it, we're giving them validation.
4: Over.
0: Tenderloin Museum's one-year anniversary celebration on July the 16th 2016, trans pioneer and artist Donna Persona is interviewed by transforming media journalist Ashley Love about San Francisco City's unbelievable whitewashing of Compton Cafeteria Riot's legacy. Priest brutality should be resisted, not honoured, yet instead of renaming the street of Turk and Taylor Compton Cafeteria Riot's Way during the recent post-trans march ceremony, as Donna and others voted on, and what the community assumed it was going to be named, the city disrespectfully named it Jean Compton Cafeteria Way. So not only has the riots been whitewashed out, but the name of racist, transphobic, and accomplice of priest brutality has been snuck in. Jean Compton, the cafeteria owner who conspired with the violent law enforcement, deserves no such honour. Here's Donna Persona once more.
19: Okay, kidding? I want to express an opinion now. I have just learned that uh, the street naming at Taylor & Turk, which happened at, uh, at the end of March this year, I was on the committee, changed the name, street name, and I voted for Compton Cafeteria Riot Way. I've learned that it's now Gene Compton's Cafeteria Way, which does not speak to the event that happened 50 years ago, which is the reason the street was being renamed. I feel dishonored, betrayed that this has occurred. I'm, I'm not interested in Gene Compton's being honoured or uh, glorified. So this, doesn't, this excludes the event, which is the historical event of the riot. I'm very unhappy about this, and, and uh, I don't think this moves the transgender uh, agenda we Oh, I'm well, very
20: Why are so many people disgusted that Gene Compton is being yes. honored?
19: Gene Compton is the man who called the police, who wanted the transgender
20: people out of there. So he called the police yes. on trans yes. women and, and, and men, and now he's being honored. And, and not, Yes, he's being honored, and
19: people walking past there will never know anything about a riot from in the name of that
20: street. I am so I'm I am I am so sorry that they exploited you and did not include you and this is I I I am so sorry that that happened. I really am like well, I I feel your pain because it's 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 a you know, using us as props. these politicians using us as props. It's just, it, they just keep on reinventing ways to do it. And but I feel this, your pain.
19: This does not advance our cause. It actually, steps a backwards.
20: Yeah, well, I just wanted to say thank you so much for like all you and everyone did in the 60s and 70s. Because if it weren't for you guys, I don't think we would have as many rights as we do today. And I'm so proud of your strength and your dedication. And you and, uh, you know, things will things will be made right. Just don't, you know, hang in there, okay?
19: Actually, this is going to make me work harder at, at this for this card. It is, and I'm, I'm gravely disappointed in that.
4: Temería, rica, 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 yuburre, a ti solito yo te amaré. A ti solito yo te amaré.
0: Studios of Bay FM in Byron Bay and broadcasting across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you've been listening to Not Thinking Straight with Michael Mack. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, goodbye.
9: Well, you
19: can
13: twist and shout. I drive a Rolls cause it's good for my voice. But you won't fool the children of the revolution. Now you won't fool the children of the revolution.